Hello, and welcome to Clearer Thinking with Spencer Greenberg, the podcast about ideas that matter. I'm Josh Castle, the producer of the podcast, and I'm so glad you've joined us today. In this episode, Spencer speaks with Cassandra Shia about project duration and complexity, using interviews for user research, the value of statistics for everyday life, and climate change strategies. By the way, Cassandra is the very first guest to make a repeat appearance on our show. She was first on the show back in episode 13 with Hank Reset, where they talked about liberalism and conservatism. Anyway, here are Spencer and Cassandra. Cassandra, thanks for coming on. It's really great to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me, Spencer. You're always up to mischief, so I'm excited to see what we're going to do today. Me too. So the first topic I wanted to discuss with you is the idea of sheds versus cakes, which is, I believe, a a pair of terms that you coined. Could you tell us about what they mean? Yeah. So uh, a shed is basically a project that has gone on for a really long time that you are no longer excited to work on and won't amount to much. And can you tell us where that word comes from, shed? Yeah. yeah, shed, Shed comes from Reddit. I was browsing Reddit one day and I saw that someone had spent nine years working on building a shed. <laughs> so it's, uh, you can picture it's kind of like gray and it's half shed, half greenhouse, but it was clearly like someone who was quite intelligent, but then spent nine years working on this. And I just read the whole post transfixed. It's a long saga about how everything went wrong and how he finally finished. And it really resonated with me because I had a similar shed project, not, not an actual shed, but a uh, I worked on a side project for five years and finally finished it. So that's what a shed is. And then the opposite of a shed is a cake. So a cake is the opposite of a shed because when you finish making a cake, everyone's very excited to eat it. And it's also small and it's time constrained. So the longest that you can work on a cake is like several days if you're making a very complex wedding cake. And after that, it starts to rot. So I I coined the cake metaphor to remind myself to make cakes, not sheds, for future projects going forward. So a shed is a project that has like an indefinite scope that could just keep going and going and going that you have to convince people to be interested in, right? You go to a party and you're like, I've been working on the shed (laughs) for nine years. You know, it's like tough to get people excited about that, right? Whereas a cake is kind of the opposite. It's like inherently time bound. And furthermore, it's inherently exciting to people. It's like you go around with your cake and it's like, oh, I want some of that cake. Like you don't have to <laughs> go around trying to persuade people to be excited about having a piece of cake. Exactly, exactly. Like bring cakes to parties, not your shed. <laughs> Great. So do you want to tell us about your shed? Yeah, well, it actually begins with kind of how you and I met, Spencer. <laughs> I met you so, because of your shed, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although at that point it wasn't, it wasn't quite a, a shed. Um, so we, we met because of my master's thesis project. So I, I was doing a master's at the MIT Media Lab and it's a very like exploratory design art school. It's a two-year program. And then at the beginning of the second year, I realized, oh my gosh, I have to graduate soon. Like I have to produce a project. And so I spent uh, a few months working on a story game called Adventures in Cognitive Biases. <laughs> it's kind of an adventure game. Uh, where you learn about Bayesian statistics and overconfidence bias uh, along the way. And I produced this under great time pressure and like shipped it to the world. And it was kind of well-received by the rationality and hacker news communities. I, when I saw this game online, I was like, holy crap, who made this? And I immediately contacted you. And that's how we <laughs> became friends. 
<laughs> Thank you so much for doing that. <laughs> yeah. But I was really embarrassed by this. And after I graduated, I kept trying to redo this project. Let's talk about what it was for a moment, right? It was a game that would teach Bayesian thinking where it was sort of like interactive and you'd have different challenges and you'd meet different characters and you'd have to use Bayesian thinking and probability to solve problems. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what was so embarrassing about this? Well, it was kind of clunky. It was my first, it was my first, I mean, I'm a, I'm a programmer by training. I have a, my undergrad degrees in computer science and the code is a giant spaghetti mess. It was my first JavaScript project. I had no idea what I was doing. And <laughs> it was under in, uh, intense time pressure that this thing shipped. And even if I tried to add extra modules to it, if I wanted to expand it, the way that I had written the story didn't easily allow me to do that. But also the, the code was a, a giant or a rat's nest and also did not let me do that. And I was thinking that, oh, I'll just, I'll just redo it and it'll be clean and then the story will be extensible. And well, what's, what's fascinating to me about that is that those things you're pointing at that were embarrassing to you are things that no user cares about, right? Like no user cares about how spaghetti your code is. No user cares about how extendable, easily extendable it is, right? <laughs> I guess so. I guess the user may want extra modules. Like there, there are other cognitive biases I would have loved to sure, uh, sure. address. But um, yeah, you're right. I guess I could have like kind of like tacked it on. Even with a page refresh, I doubt users would have cared that much. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the things I really admire about you, Spencer, that you are able to shift things so consistently and on schedule and have yeah. What's your secret? Like, how do you think about this? Well, I'm not sure that's a fair compliment because I, I, for example, <laughs> I have one project that I made like two years ago and still haven't shipped. But to be fair, I have shipped a lot of stuff. So, you know, sometimes there's, I feel like sometimes I have hang ups that prevent me from shipping things, but I really do aspire to ship things as soon as they're ready. But I guess the, the way I think about it is you always need to be getting valuable data and feedback. Mm -hmm. And the intuition of like ship as soon as possible is useful heuristic because it helps you get important data and feedback, but it's not the only way to get it, right? So let's say, just for example, let's say you're trying to create a new technology to solve a really big problem. It might actually take years and years and years to actually make a good enough technology to solve that problem. That, that's not out of the question at all. The danger is if during that those years and years and years, you're actually not getting tons of feedback from the world and you're just kind of sitting in your garage building the thing, then there's a really good chance you're going to build something that people don't actually care about or want. Whereas if you actually build in the feedback loops to get the, the valuable information all the time, then I think in some cases, you don't necessarily need to ship right away. In fact, for really big problems, the version 1.0 that you could ship in three months is probably not going to solve the problem. I'm nodding so hard right now. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that, that's kind of the, yeah, that's kind of the punchline I learned after five years. <laughs> so you, you create adventures and cognitive biases, right? And then you're like, this is not good enough. I don't like it enough. And then what happens, right? How did, how did you go from there to like five years later? Right. So I guess after Adventures and Cognitive Biases for, first launch, and there, there was a like warm reception for it, I think, unfortunately, that's also when scope creep kind of came in. That's a, a, t a term that programmers know well when your project keeps getting bigger and bigger because <laughs> it has to do more and more. So it was... Uh, yeah, so I guess through Adventures in Cognitive Biases, I, uh, I met some pretty cool people like, like, like yourself and Eliezer Yukowski from Harry Potter and Methods of Rationality. And Eliezer and his partner, Brienne, were pretty excited about this and actually helped me uh, do a Indiegogo campaign to do the next iteration of, oh, nice. of this. Um, but then <laughs> that's kind of where I was like, wow, like, it has to be better than Adventures in Cognitive Biases. And uh, it's going to cover all these different things. It's going to cover, in addition to everything we covered before is also going to cover 
expected value and variance and probability distributions and uh, just like all the possible ways they can use probability in, in your daily life. Uh, so, so scope creep came in, um, especially because then I, I took people's money for this project and promised all these things. And that creates so much stress, right? Now you're like, oh, I have to deliver. I, I've taken their money, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> money, money, the root of all evil. <laughs> yeah, so I created over the course of the year, maybe I created three or four different iterations of this. I wasn't happy with and, and never shipped. And uh, then I ran out of money and uh, got a job at Google and kept working on this in my free time. So over the course of uh, four years, since Adventures and Cognitive Biases first launched, I made like, nine different iterations, oh uh, like, totally different storylines. Yeah. Well, it took nine different storylines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 totally different, like, like kind of from scratch each time, just like tuck the previous things out of the window. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Better, now, <laughs> I don't want to be tough on you, but could it be possible that the problem is not that it's not good enough, but that it's something about your own way of assessing your projects? Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Possibly. nine storylines. <laughs> Possibly. There were definitely things I could have done differently to design things more efficiently. And I would love to share those uh, <laughs> once I finish telling this, my, my shed saga, because I guess that's why I'm kind of excited to be on air today to kind of share this failure and uh, hopefully save other people from this path. Well, I have, to, I have to say, I think it's really wonderful to talk about failure because first of all, people rarely talk about it. They're often embarrassed, even though everyone fails sometimes. And a lot of times we learn the most from our failures. And if we're trying to do hard things, I think we have to assume that we're going to have many failures along the way. So I think, I think this kind of sharing is super valuable. So thank you for that. Oh, <laughs> oh thanks. And thanks for creating a, a safe space to do that. Yeah. So, okay. So nine, nine different versions. And then now it's, it's been four years and I'm, I'm working at Google, working on this in my free time. And uh, I just realized like, wow, I, hey, I, I don't think I'm ever going to finish this project while I'm employed full-time at Google, I should just quit and finish this project. So I sent off a, a goodbye email, like, goodbye, I'm going to go work on my passion projects. And uh, <laughs> Google management uh, uh, stepped in and offered the opportunity to finish the project while working on it full-time six months at Google. It's a pretty awesome offer. Yeah, I'm really grateful. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much, um, all the people at Google that made that happen. So I had the opportunity to finish the project with advice from Google's top-notch design team and all the other resources there. And then I kind of learned that, hey, like designers and product managers have lots of processes and frameworks for avoiding shed projects like this. <laughs> yeah, so I'd love to hear some of what you learned about how to avoid sheds. Yeah, yeah, so so many things. So I'll, I'll just drop down some of the, some of these ideas and we can like go into uh, them more in depth, but probably like the ones that you've already alluded to, user-centered design, jobs to be done framework, really iterating with a user. You can do cognitive walkthroughs with them. There's prototyping, which is kind of like pre-prototyping because even prototyping takes too long. So what can you do to get stuff in front of users more cheaply and faster? Tell us about what is a cognitive walkthrough and what problem does it solve? Yeah, so the, the tool, the cognitive walkthrough, is probably my favorite technique. So this comes from user experience research, and it allows you to really learn about uh, users holistically. So what you'll do is you'll show them something, and the something could be kind of what you currently have, or it could be just sketches of your idea, or if you don't even have that, it could also be a competitor's product or offering. Basically, the point is you, you show them something, and then you ask the user to share their stream of consciousness reaction 
to the thing that you're showing them. So any reaction, be it positive, negative, surprising, or even if they don't feel like the reaction is relevant at all, you just ask them to say it anyways. And then you take a very careful notes and see what parts of the product that they resonate with or what part is confusing for them. Yeah, it's a super useful tool. And I'll just add a a couple things on top of that about how I like to do this. One is I like to make it super clear to the person that you're interviewing that the way they can most help you is by telling you what they don't like and by criticizing it. Because by default, if you do this with a friend, they're going to tell you your thing is awesome because they want to be supportive and make you feel good. Even if you do it with an acquaintance or stranger, there's going to be a temptation to kind of not be too harsh with you because it's, it's awkward and uncomfortable. But if you flip it so that they actually feel like the way they help you is by making it better, if you say, look, I really need to make this better and I need your help, then it just totally changes the nature of how they can be helpful to you. So that, that's one thing I find really powerful. Another is people are really tempted when they're doing these interviews to like stop the person or direct them. And instead, I like to say, okay, I want you to just use this the way you would use it as though I, I was not here. Pretend I'm not here. The only difference is that you're just going to speak out loud everything that runs through your mind. So you're just verbalizing your internal content, but otherwise pretend I'm not here. And then you only actually stop or redirect the user when they get really stuck in a way that like is just derailing the interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, thank you. Thank you for, that, for those. And then the, I guess the third thing that I would, I would tack on is the surprising thing is that you don't actually have to do this with that many people. So um, I, I found through, through doing this for my statistics project that the usefulness of doing cognitive walkthroughs kind of decays after, you know, gets much more marginal benefit after five or six people. And that's a number that comes from user experience research as well, that you kind of only have to do it with five or six people. I mean, I would agree that that's often enough to learn a lot, but I'll just say, just to try to like dig into that idea a little bit mm-hmm. more of like, how many of these do you have to do? I think what, what I like to do is you do, let's say three, and then you ask yourself, am I learning stuff? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if not, then you might consider using a different tool because there's a lot of different ways to learn about your user. And if you are learning stuff, do another three and then say, okay, am I still learning stuff? And so I like to keep going until I feel like I've done three in a row where I like feel like I stopped learning anything new. It can be a way to adjust dynamically based on, you know, because different projects, it's going to take different numbers of interviews. So I think that's a useful thing. And also, I just want to comment on something else, which is that Some people express extreme skepticism about this kind of thing because they say, well, okay, so you did five interviews. That's five data points. Like imagine, you know, someone does a a drug trial and like five people get the drug and and you're like, well, you can't learn anything from that. But I think this is based on a misunderstanding of the way data works. Because when you do an interview like this, a lot of times when someone struggles with something, you can actually tell immediately that this is actually a problem, but you weren't aware of it before. So it's more like making you aware of something that is clearly a problem. So for example, imagine you're doing your second interview and someone gets stuck because they clicked the wrong button and they can't get out, right? Well, like you don't need to have that happen a hundred more times to know that that's a problem. You're like, oh, I never thought about that. That's a way a user can get trapped. Clearly that's bad. Or say you do five interviews and two people were confused by the same thing, right? Now, if you had asked people, does that thing confuse you? And two out of five said yes, that's a lot less persuasive than if on their own, when they're told to just speak whatever comes to their mind, two of them organically mention that they're confused. It's actually dramatically more evidence because the chance that they just organically mention the same thing is really low. Whereas if you draw their attention to it, ask them about it, then it becomes a lot less low that they would say they're confused. Yeah, like I totally agree with that. Like I feel like the dimensionality of the information that's coming at you through these cognitive walkthroughs and qualitative interviews is just so much higher than than a survey. Like I definitely feel like there's space for 
both user research techniques, like surveys versus more qualitative things. But yeah, I agree. Like you would need a lot more, a bigger N for the survey. They're just complementary. Yeah, they're complementary. And especially if it's a quantitative survey, you need a bigger sample size, but you could also do qualitative surveys. And I like to think about this. I, I like to use the metaphor of a tool belt. There's something like 20 tools in the tool belt of how to get information about improving a product. And I think of cognitive walkthroughs as one of the 20 tools. And it's an incredibly useful and powerful tool, but it's not the right tool for everything. And you know, a quantitative survey is another tool and a qualitative survey is yet another tool. And talking to experts is yet another tool and so on. And so it's like, the way I think about it is each of these tools is really good at doing some things, but less good at doing other things. And it all depends on the question you're trying to answer. So it's like, if you have a tool belt with a hammer and a wrench, you know, don't use the hammer when you need the wrench and don't use the, the wrench to try to hit nails into the wall, right? Yep, yep, yep. So, okay, let's go to the next one, prototyping. I want to hear what that is. Yeah, so prototyping is a term coined by Alberto Savoya, who is a former former Googler, but uh, now lectures at Stanford and it means pre-prototyping. It's the idea that even building a prototype may be too expensive for the type of data that you're trying to collect, especially if you, if you give an engineer like me a, a, a prototype out, I kind of just like go, go ham and run away with it. <laughs> there are cheaper ways to iterate on the idea and get feedback from users. Alberta really encourages you to think about how you might be able to iterate more cheaply. So an example of, of prototyping, when the guy who invented Palm Pilot was thinking about making a personal handheld assistant, obviously this Palm Pilot first prototype would take uh, of a lot of hardware and software engineers to make. So he first made a, a prototype and it was just a block of wood. <laughs> it was a block of wood that he would carry in his pocket. And he would go, he would go around with this block of wood in his pocket doing his daily life. And whenever he, came, he ran into a situation in which he imagined the Palm Pilot would be useful, he would pull out the block of wood from his pocket and interact with it as though the Palm Pilot actually worked and uh, to see how that felt and to better understand the user. That's wonderful. I love that. And I think a really key thing about prototyping is about reducing risk. It's like by creating the fake Palm Pilot out of a block of wood, he was able to test a hypothesis dramatically faster and cheaper than if he actually had to build one out of plastic, let alone make one that actually works, right? Yep, yep, yep. It also goes to like a useful principle whenever you're doing a project, which is this idea of what is the riskiest part of it? Because for any project, there are going to be some parts where you're like, yeah, I could definitely do that part. That's no problem. I have experience with that, or I can see how to do that. And there are other parts that are like, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure about that part. That, that might be hard. Or I'm not sure about that part. That I'm not sure if users are going to like that. And so if you can focus on gathering information about whatever the biggest risks are, that's actually a very efficient way to find out quickly if the project's viable. Exactly. Yeah. I actually, I've heard that same like de-risking, like this, the journey to navigate a complex map of, of all the risks and trying to find the, the least risky path from the startup circles as well. It reminds me of, I was talking to a startup founder and he had a really cool product that he was making and I tried it out and I was like, wow, this is great. And then I was like, what's your plan? He's like, well, I have enough funding for, you know, a few months, but like, I just posted this on Hacker News and I'm getting all this attention and it's like going great. And I'm like, a few months, oh my gosh, you've got to figure out, you know, what, what you've got to figure out, you've got only have three months till you run out of money. And I was just like, and I, you know, it's just like, I think when you're working on a time frame like that, you don't have the time to do anything other than figure out the biggest risks and eliminate them, right? And sadly, he then <laughs> he eventually ran out of money. And so I think if he had taken a different approach, though, his product is so cool that 
maybe it could have succeeded. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, the way you told that anecdote is pretty interesting because it felt like the founder was using the full runway he had allocated to take his one shot. And I think like if like through prototypes or other techniques, you might be able to take like multiple shots with the same amount of time. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And I think another kind of little lesson in that story is that he was focusing on this thing like, oh, people on Hacker News are talking about it. Lots of people are trying it. That is interesting. And that's, you know, something valuable, but that's not the key thing. The key thing is like, does it really solve a problem for people or does it really deliver value? Not just like, can I get people to share it a bunch on Hacker News or something like that? So it's sort of, I felt like he was being a little bit lured in by the wrong metrics that made him overconfident. Yeah, that's another framework <laughs> that that's, I guess you're learning, uh, alluding to user journeys as well as the, the jobs to be done framework, like really understanding like what is the problem with the current status quo that users are struggling with and removing that block. Uh, whereas I think my natural instinct is kind of like, wow, that solution is a beautiful idea to a nebulous problem. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that's, it's so easy to get lured in by like something that's interesting or exciting without realizing that it doesn't really solve a problem for people, or it doesn't necessarily have to solve a problem for people, but it needs to deliver a lot of value. And that could be by solving a problem or by giving people something they really want or some other strategy. But it really always has to be about delivering value. Otherwise, even if you can get people to use it, usually it's going to fail. Yeah. Like every, every designer I talked to at Google when <laughs> uh, about this project, like their first questions were always, what is your goal for, for this project? Like, how would you know you have succeeded? And what is the intended audience? Yeah, that's such a great clarifying question. Yeah, I think that that's taught in design school. Like, in, in order to give like the appropriate feedback, you have to know that like those two framing questions. Yeah, so I have this idea that I call always be asking the question, which is oh. basically the, the concept is if you're building a project or a product, there is always some big question that you need to know the answer to that you don't know the answer to. But the first question you have to ask is the meta question of what is the question I, I need to know the answer to that I don't know the answer to, right? So, <laughs> so that's the first step is say, what is the big question I need to know the answer to, right? Then step two is now that you have that question, you need to go try to answer it. And that's where the tool belt comes in. It's like, oh, I've got this tool belt of, of tools to help me answer the big questions. And then as soon as you have started to answer that question, you feel like you're beginning to understand it it's no longer the biggest question anymore. And then you have to go back to the meta question and say, okay, now what is the biggest question I need to know the answer to that I don't know the answer to? So there's this loop of asking the meta question and then asking the, once you use it that to find the question you need to know the answer to, you're asking the question itself and then using your tool belt to answer it and then going back to the meta question. Yeah, oh, I'm intrigued by that. This feels kind of like what you were saying about de-risking. So kind of the sequence of questions changes as, as you learn more about the situation. But can you say more about like what the meta question is or the hierarchy of questions? Let's take your example where you're trying to build a game to teach people probabilistic thinking, right? Uh-huh. So when you first started the project, what would you say is the biggest question that you should have tried to answer that you didn't? And, and so this is what I'm asking right now is the meta question. The meta question is, what is the biggest question? right? It's a question about the question. So what would you say the answer to that is? I should have asked, who are these people? <laughs> who are these people who kind of liked adventures in cognitive biases? Like, who are they? Like, why do they think that this is useful to their life? Yeah, that's great. That's great. And then you answer the meta question, which is step two, which is, okay, who are these people, right? That's the most important question you'd answer. And now you take out your tool belt and try to answer that. So how much, what, you know, what tool in the tool belt might you use to answer that question? I'm going to bust out my favorite tool, <laughs> which is the, the cognitive walkthrough, I think. Yeah, great. So you could watch users use your product. 
to try to help figure out what they find most valuable about it. Is that the idea? Yeah. And also just asking, before I do a cognitive walkthrough, I, I usually also ask some open-ended questions about, about their background. Right. So that would be even a different tool, like just an open-ended interview to try to understand them and what they care about and why they might care about this yep. product. Yep. Right. Okay. So yep. now let's say you answered, now you've answered the question, like, okay, you know who the user is, right? Let's say the user is like, I don't know, techie types that always felt like they wanted to understand statistics probability better, but never learned it or something like that. Right. Let's say I'm just making that up. Uh-huh. Okay. Now you figured that out. Now you gotta go back to the meta question and say, okay, now what's the biggest question I don't know the answer to that I need to know the answer to? Because you've already answered the last one. And so now you have to answer the meta question again. So that's, the, that's where the loop comes back. That's this idea of looping the question. Uh, yes, yes, I, I see it, I see it now. <laughs> yeah, that's very compelling. Are you facing a tough or important life decision? then you should try using Clearer Thinking's Decision Advisor tool to make it easier. With this tool, you won't have to stress as much about those big life decisions. The Decision Advisor can walk you through even the most complicated situations in minutes, so you can come out on the other side with a better idea of what to do. To use the free Decision Advisor tool, or to find Clearer Thinking's other free tools and mini-courses, head to clearerthinking.org. So let's transition topics a little bit to the idea of design thinking and the jobs to be done framework. Could you tell us what does that mean? Yeah, this is a a new idea to me, but I am like very excited about it. It's like yet another tool on the design tool belt. But basically, we've already talked about what is the the user's actual problem? Like who are these actual users in which we're trying to solve real problems? And the jobs to be done framework takes it yet another level, level further. So the problems in the jobs to be done framework are not, oh, I want to learn statistics. Like that's not a problem. <laughs> the, the problem under this framework is intrinsic desires for the user. Kind of like you think about how this user would have a superpower. Like what is the core identity like change that they're hoping for by learning statistics? Like is it... Right. So it's like learning statistics is an intermediate goal. It's not like a fundamental goal. Is that the idea? Exactly. Exactly. Why do they want to learn statistics? Like that's the deeper underlying thing. Exactly. Exactly. And like tapping onto that pure underlying motivation, similar to your uh, intrinsic values test, which I took earlier this week and I really like Spencer. It's funny. It seems to come up on every episode of my podcast. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Amazing. So yeah, plus one, everyone check that out. You can find it on (laughs) clearthing.org if you haven't taken it. But one of the things I really like about the idea of thinking about the underlying goal of the user is that it can help you realize that there's actually a better way to serve the underlying goal than your original plan. So for example, I know someone that sometimes advises wealthy donors on how to give to charity more effectively. And she would have this problem again and again, where donors would come in with these really specific plans about how to improve the world. Like for example, oh, I know how to improve the world. We need to get all high school students to take debate class. And then she would ask, okay, uh, well, that's kind of specific. Why, why get them to take debate class? And then the person would have some theory about how doing debate will help people be able to express their opinions, which is going to help them in all these different ways in their life. And so then what she could do is, is talk to that person and say, okay, let's put the idea of debate class on hold for a moment. Let's talk about what are all the underlying motivations you have? Like, what are you actually trying to change in people's life? And then once we figure that out, We'll keep debate in mind as one strategy, but let's brainstorm some other strategies that we can also potentially use to help them achieve that goal in life. And then, of course, the reality is debate is probably not the most efficient way to get them to achieve that that goal in life, right? Yeah, 
Wow. Well, Spencer, you just, <laughs> either that's the perfect natural segue or you have just invented the, the theory of change framework. All right, let's talk about the theory of change framework. How, how does it work? So theory of change framework emerged out of the nonprofit space, like, like you're saying, and it's a framework that allows nonprofits to pinpoint the underlying assumptions for their interventions. So exactly what you just talked about, like, hey, we, we have a nonprofit that gets people to like, learn how to debate. But the theory of change asks people to kind of unpack that into the unspoken assumptions, like the true map of the space. Like, what is the true goal? What are all the, the levers in the space? What are kind of like the secondary levers? And only when you have this true map of uh, how this nonprofit thinks that the world operates, can you kind of prove that the lever, the intervention that you're proposing is the best way to solve the problem. Absolutely. And, or invalidate it and show that it's actually not the best way or that it doesn't work. Exactly. That, that is usually what happens when you make <laughs> one of these maps. <laughs> so entrepreneurs sometimes ask me to talk to them about their ideas. And I've been trying to think about how do I help an entrepreneur with their idea? And one of the things that I realized is that one of the most helpful things I can do, let's say I only have half an hour, right? One of the most helpful things I can do is ask them for their very specific theory of change. Like, okay, you're going to help population X who normally does action Y in situation Z instead do action W or something like that, right? And like, I try to get them to state it as concretely as possible, how a specific thing in a specific place is different than what they would have done otherwise, and then how that leads to a change or benefit for them, right? And what I find when I do this with entrepreneurs is that occasionally they're able to do this exercise immediately, but more often they actually struggle to do it. And one of two things emerges, both of which I think are useful. The first thing that emerges is that they realize that there's gaps in their plan. In other words, their idea might be promising, but it's not fully flushed out. And so this exercise can help them flush it out further and make them realize that there's other aspects of their plan they have to put in place. The second thing that can happen is that they might realize that their plan makes no sense. Like basically that it's not really plausible that the thing they're doing will actually lead to like a specific change in behavior for a specific person at a specific time and that they might actually need to use a different strategy. And either way it comes out, I feel like it's, it's just one of the most useful things I can do in a short amount of time. Yes, that, that sounds hyper-efficient. I would love to actually see your checklist for how you kind of launch and uh, vet projects. It sounds, like, <laughs> it sounds like you already know all the things that I've kind of spent five years experimenting and learning. Well, you know, I've both spent a, a, a while experimenting and learning. So I feel like we've been on a, you know, similar journeys in that sense. So, and I, you know, I've made lots of mistakes and, and learned from them. So <laughs> that's been another useful. So do you have a checklist? Like uh, in this situation, I use this tool. In this situation, I use this tool. Oh, for the tool belt, you mean? Yeah. So there's a lot to say about like when to use different tools in the tool belt. And if we go back to this idea of like looping the question that we were talking about before, like asking the meta question and then asking the question itself and trying to answer it, to me, the choice of tool in the tool belt depends completely on the question you're trying to answer. So for example, if you're trying to get answer the question of why is it that my users who start using my product all stop using it, right? Well, there you might have to interview people that started using it and stopped, right? Whereas another completely different problem you might have, another completely different question is how do I actually solve this problem for people? There you open unstructured interviews with people, or you might go talk to experts in the field, or you might go read books on that area. So to me, it's like, with the tool in the tool belt is mapped to the question. Mm. And so that's how you, you should decide. So it's hard to give like a, a clear checklist because it really depends on the nature of your question. Yeah, well, maybe a crib sheet then. Crib sheet, yeah. <laughs> maybe we should, we should summarize all the, I guess, all the techniques we're calling out in this podcast with like links for further reading along with the, the questions that they answer. We should make yeah. an infographic together of like which, to, the, the, of the tool belt and which tool solves which problem. I think that'd be wonderful. <laughs> so now I want to talk about 
your journey. So you worked in the shed for five years. You learned all these interesting lessons about how to do things better. And then what happened? I finally finished it. So, uh, so the, with the six months allocated uh, at Google and with uh, all these kind of like new design ideas, I, uh, I finished and shipped the Wizard's Guide to Statistics. So you can find that on my website. Yay. As long as, uh, yeah, <laughs> yay, yeah. And also there is a postmortem of, of everything that I, I learned through, through this experience. And I also have, so I have a blog post on how to make cakes, not sheds, and another blog post on all the tools that we've called out so far. So before we talk about your transition to the, the next phase of your life, I just want to ask you, you spent so much time working on this project. Why do you care so <laughs> yes. much about teaching people probability? Honestly, it was one of the coolest things I learned at MIT. So I went to MIT for the computer science undergrad, and then I did a master's at the Media Lab. And during that time, there were a few classes I took. So one was a probabilistic cognitive science class. So it was very much about like seeing the world as probability distributions. Your belief is a probability distribution. And then as new information comes, your probability distribution changes, like what you believe changes. And I, it was just blew my mind that there is a mathematical formula for this. Like, Bayes rule. You can use Bayes rule to update your beliefs accurately. And if you don't use Bayes rule to update your beliefs accurately, then wonky things can happen and you don't make the, the best decisions in life. And yeah, so uh, play adventures of cognitive biases to, to find out more. But yeah, this is basically how uh, two different professors at MIT kind of taught me to see the world differently. And I just wanted to like package that up and have that in the world. That's awesome. I think that illustrates an interesting point that I don't think I've ever thought about which is this idea that you can imagine this Venn diagram, which is the things that your users really care about, like what their problems are, what they value, which is what we were talking about earlier of like trying to unpack, like what does your user really want? And then on the flip side, what do you really want to create in the world? Like what do you value? And actually your product needs to be at the Venn diagram intersection of these two things, right? And so it speaks to this, that there's this external process of like understanding your users and also carving out who your user is going to be like, figure, you know, because you can choose your user to some degree and then you need to study that, that person you choose and maybe you'll adapt it over time who your user is. But then it also talks about this internal exploration of what are you trying to do? What are you trying to create in the world? And it's really both of those things have to come together in your product. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. And actually, like, that's such a thoughtful question, Spencer, because I guess in my answer, I'm beginning to realize like, I was kind of nerd sniped by the beauty of the idea. <laughs> I was like, wow, this idea is so beautiful. Let's make it. Whereas all these techniques are saying like, no, 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 don't, don't do that, Cassandra. I think what, what this is causing me to reflect is that it's important to start with like, what do you actually want to happen in the world? And what are the barriers from reaching there and working backwards to design a solution rather than getting lured away by beautiful ideas? Mm -hmm. I will also say though, it seems like something else is at the root of your quest because you made adventures of cognitive biases, but your new game, which, which I love by the way, and I think is, is, uh, everyone should check out, it is not specifically about Bayes' rule. It's, it's actually about learning statistics more broadly and understanding statistics on a deep level. Would you agree with that? Yes, that is true. Because I guess once I made adventures of cognitive biases, and which I think it, it did cover this Bayesian update of beliefs decently, I guess, or at least I had spent so long on it. I'm like, okay, I'm going to stop finicky with this. <laughs> I did try to redo it better, but I, I decided to just kind of leave it in its original form. <laughs> but uh, there are so many other uh, concepts that are like super, super important in, in everyday life, especially, I guess, like in the current climate, like logical thinking, like not, not even probabilistic thinking at, at this point seems uh, like it is uh, uh, <laughs> a rare skill. 
So what are some of the things that you teach in Wizard's Guide to Statistics that you think are most useful to people? So the concepts that I, I choose to cover in the Wizard's Guide to Statistics are the basic probabilistic building blocks that are both useful to everyday life, but also if you're interested in any more technical field like machine learning, I think it's, it's the, the prerequisites. So uh, we cover independent events, like what randomness looks like, conditional probabilities, the chain rule, expected value, p-values. So it's just like kind of the probabilistic and statistical concepts that you are exposed to in everyday life, regardless of whether you recognize it or not. And uh, if you do recognize it, it's so cool to be able to use these concepts to model your world. That's awesome. So if I think about why, why do I see those as valuable, those concepts, I think each of them has a really specific purpose. Like for example, understanding expected value is really a decision-making tool, right? Mm -hmm. Like by thinking about a decision you have to make in the world, you can think about, okay, which one has the highest expected value, which basically just means on average, which one do I think is going to be best. But also something that's really powerful about expected value is that you can show that for small bets, the optimal thing is just to maximize the expected value. So for example, if you're playing a betting game like poker, if you are making relatively small bets, you're not betting your house, right? But you're making small bets. If you try to maximize the expected value, you'll actually do the best over a long period. That's not necessarily true if you're making really large bets. So I think we need a different framework to think about that. But so that's kind of what I see as one of the most powerful reasons to understand expected value. Yeah. And I also feel like it's kind of a form of literacy. So I actually did do some user interviews with, <laughs> before, before building this um, this time. And so I talked to, I guess, a number of the security guards on Google campus and I was giving them probabilistic questions. For instance, I, I went around and asked people, hey, if I'm running a raffle and the grand prize for this raffle is $10,000 and I am going to issue 10,000 raffle tickets, how much would you pay me for one raffle ticket? So this is a, a, a very basic expected value question and the answer should be one. <laughs> uh, the answer should be one, but I got all sorts of different answers. Most one, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's a little risk averse, <laughs> but I was blown away that I got all sorts of different answers from the lowest answer I got was $2. And then someone went up to $500. Well, I wonder if people were also just trying to please you as well. <laughs> that, that was part of it. Cause it was, so I, I did ask them like a little bit deeper, like, Oh, why, why would you pay that amount? And some of them were, were so thoughtful. They were like, Oh yeah. So, uh, so the answers range from, from kind of like, Oh, that's, that's what I can afford. And, um, I have a chance of winning $10,000. So it seems like that's what I can afford. So that's what I can put in. And some people were actually even worrying about like the lottery, uh, the raffle organizers making sure that they got a cut too. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so they kind of wanted to be more than fair. But yeah, I think anyone trained in probability would just answer like $1. Whereas this was a, a non-trivial question that other people gave a lot of thought to without formal training in the topic. Well, it just shows that having a framework for these kinds of things can simplify certain types of decisions. And whereas in, in real life, you know, usually things are not as easy to analyze as like, oh, you know, the probabilities of each outcome exactly. Still just knowing that in the, the theoretical optimal betting, you're going to play this way can help you think about real world problems. Exactly. I also think with Wizard's Guide to Statistics, something you do that's really cool is the way you focus on getting an intuitive feel for randomness and probabilities. Like you have to generate all these different outcomes of coins, and then you have to actually say which coin is acting in a, in a funny or surprising way that you wouldn't expect. And I like that a lot because I think in real life, we're often thrown off by randomness. Like we have this general feeling that randomness feels a certain way, 
like that, for example, that there aren't a lot of clumps in randomness, but in fact, randomness tends to be a lot clumpier than people realize. Like if you're flipping a coin, you might think that like, usually when you're flipping it, you'll go like heads, tails, heads, tails, you know, like there'll be a lot of flipping back and forth. In practice, if you flip it a bunch of times, you'll see these long clumps of heads, 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 heads. And that really surprises people, but that's just the way randomness works. And so I think we're often tricked or confused into thinking that things that are actually random are not random. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think you have a really nice solution to that, which is actually like having people play with randomness and try to get get an intuitive grasp of it. Exactly, exactly. And like the other reason why I think it's so important to build intuition for these topics rather than being able to manipulate the symbols with with pencil and paper is uh, intuition means that it is embedded in your gut sense that you can uh, begin to have quick reactions to like what it should be. And that's kind of what you need in the real world, because in the real world, when you encounter these probabilistic settings, you're not going to say like, oh, stop, like, let me, let me, uh, let me use the pencil and, and solve for this. Like you, you do need to have a gut sense in order to deploy this. Well, the way I think about it is that you first have to understand it on like an intellectual level, right? And so you have to teach the concept, but then you want to push that intellectual understanding down into your intuition so that you no longer have to constantly think about it and reflect on it to use the idea. Exactly. And one of the hacks for doing this is by using your visual processing power. <laughs> so by, by using images and visualizations. So for instance, when these games teach Bayes' rule, you don't think of the Bayes' rule numerical formula. These games present it as, uh, as bar charts and distributions, because then you can see, you can use the parallel processing power of, of your eyes and your visual system to judge the ratio between the bars and compute the odds ratio form of the Bayes' rule kind of instantly using areas. That's really neat. And I think it's really important to realize that we have these different systems in our brain that are good at different things. And for many people, the visual system is much more effective at some things than other parts of the brain. And so a nice example of this is with memory. If you can find a way to visualize the thing you want to remember, it often just makes your memory much more accurate. So a trick that I use sometimes is if I just met someone, and I want to remember their name because you know I'm not the best at remembering names normally. So let's say I meet someone named Tom and I want to remember that that's Tom. I'll actually think of another person I know, either a real a person I know in person or a celebrity with the same name. So in this case, maybe Tom Cruise. And then I'll actually imagine them interacting. And ideally, the interaction should be something that relates specifically to Tom Cruise. So maybe I'll imagine him like coming down from the ceiling on a rope, like in Mission Impossible, and like interacting with this other Tom, maybe by like biting his face or his ear or something. The idea is to try to make it really salient. like weird and visceral yeah. and salient. Like, it's like, that's so creepy and weird that Tom Cruise would just bite him, <laughs> but you're not going to forget that. Right. And the fact that he came down from the ceiling, like a mission possible, that means you're going to remember it's Tom Cruise because that's very linked to Tom Cruise. And so now there's no way I'm going to forget that guy's name because I'm going to link it to that image of Tom Cruise, like coming down from the ceiling. And so, so that's, I think using your visual memory is just so powerful Whereas if you try to just remember Tom, Tom, Tom as like a loop of audio, it's actually much harder. Fun fact, my middle name is Tom. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Well, now I'll remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Cruise biting me. <laughs> okay, so I want to talk about your standard for yourself because I feel like, from my perspective, I feel like there's a, a gap. You've talked about all these wonderful tools for building products more effectively and making sure you're adding value and so on. But I don't think we've really gotten to like, why was your standard for yourself such that you had to build this thing nine times and you were not satisfied? 
Well, I, I mean, honestly, I think a lot of things went wrong in the nine times that I, I built them because I uh, didn't have all these design tools, but at hand. Well, yeah, you were applying your own internal standard, right? Like, what would it be like? You'd build, you know, version number six, and then you, what happens? You look at it, you try it out, and you're like, ah, this is not what I want. <laughs> and then you go and build version number seven. Is that what's happening? Uh, yeah, more, more anguish in between. Like, usually, like, it starts off, like, I come up with an idea. I'm like, wow, wouldn't that be nice? So, again, folks listening, don't do that. Like, <laughs> like back solve from, from the actual problem. Like, don't get lost in the beauty of the idea. But yeah, so I get like entranced by the beauty of the idea and I'll be like, oh, wow, like I, I'm going to go build that out and see what it looks like. And I build it out. I'm like, oh, that's not as nice as I envisioned. And then I spend some time trying to make it better. Yeah, then, then I'm like, oh, it sucks. And then I throw it away and I anguish for a bit. And I come up with like months later, I come up with another idea and repeat the process. The reason I'm getting into this is because I think there's something like a lot of people can relate to. I think this is a really common thing where people will have this idea for something, they try to make it, and they're unsatisfied with what they make, and then they trash it, and they can spin a lot of cycles that way. And I don't think it's fully explained by the design tools things we were talking about. Yes, those are really powerful techniques. And yes, if you'd use them, it may well have gone better. But I feel like there's something else going on that you're skirting around, which is something about your like self-evaluation, like you're imagining this thing in your mind, then you're going and trying to build it and you're like, oh, that's garbage, right? What's going on? Why, why does that happen again and again to you? Maybe, yeah, I, I'm probably not a good judge of my own work because like, like I said, I didn't feel like Adventures in Cognitive Biases was very good, but then I guess the external reception was positive. So doesn't that suggest though, that even if you were using the design tools and users were saying this is good, you still wouldn't have believed it? The design tools put the thing in front of actual users. So I think it does help because if, oh, if users are excited about it, then the, the creator runs into enough excited users that they'll, they'll probably have the confidence to ship it. But I guess the other thing that I have found helpful um, in going through these nine different iterations is separating the, the developer role and the, the product manager role. So I will usually ask like another friend to be the product manager, the one who tells me whether it's good enough to ship or not. Oh, that's nice. That's a good trick. Okay, so I'm going to throw out a hypothesis. This could be totally off. My hypothesis is that you have this vision in your mind that's unrealistically good. And it's maybe good on dimensions that like are almost impossible to satisfy. And then you go try to build a thing in the world and the world is complicated and it's actually hard to make stuff and you know code gets complicated and messy over time. And then you compare this thing you built to this like perfect vision in your mind and you're like, ah, it's trash because it doesn't live it up to it, but it never will. What do you think about that? That's very possible because feels like another kind of axis to trade off on is the size of the thing, like size versus polish. Because if something is smaller, you can polish it more and it'll be shinier and, uh, and, and I, I don't have as many bones to pick with it. <laughs> so another reason to make a cake instead of a shed. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I would also say, though, if you focus on the thing you're really trying to achieve in the world mm -hmm. with what you're building, it maybe can help avoid that kind of judgment because sure, the thing may not look exactly like you wanted. It may not live up to the ideal in your mind, but if you're like, well, but the point of this is to achieve a specific goal and I can tell I'm achieving it, right? So yeah, it's not shiny and beautiful, but it does the thing that's supposed to do, right? Whereas if, if you don't have a really crystal clear idea of like what you're actually trying to do with it, then you're just comparing it against this kind of idealized form. Oh, Spencer, you're so wise. <laughs> <laughs> that, that actually, yeah, you're so wise. And um, that really echoes a, a quote from one of my favorite creators. So uh, one of my favorite creators, uh, Lamb Cat makes a weekly comic 
a weekly comic and it's, it's a ton of material to produce. It's like a very long comic strip called the Cursed Princess Club. <laughs> but there's uh, both a comic and there's also sometimes music and sound and it's just a huge production for one week. And in their Patreon, they said that their heuristic for when it's good enough to ship is like when it's the bare minimum to get the, the sense through, to get the idea through. So echoing what you said. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to think about the different forms of minimal viable product or MVPs. One form of it is like the minimum thing you can show to someone to get feedback or to do a cognitive walkthrough. And that might be like a piece of paper that you just drew some stuff on or whatever, right? Then another version of an MVP is the minimal thing that does what it's supposed to do to like the minimum degree. Like it maybe has almost no features. A third version is much more complex, and that is the minimum version that solves the problem the best it's ever been solved for that specific audience, which is a much more advanced form of MVP, but it's still minimal in a certain sense. So it's like, imagine you're trying to make a to-do list app that's specifically for, I don't know, I'm gonna make something up, for chemists, right? Like it really hasn't proven its worth until it is the best to-do list app for chemists. So it doesn't have to be the best to-do list app for everyone in the world. And it doesn't have to have every feature you want it to have, but if it's like, let's say it's like the third best to do this lab for chemists, right? Why on earth would a chemist use it? First of all, they could use the first or second best. Also, they've never heard of your company before and you're, maybe your product will like cease to exist in six months, right? So it's like, so there's this other kind of minimum viable product, which is like, it should be the best to solve the specific problem the user has. Creating that kind of, kind of minimum viable product also suggests that you really have to focus on exactly what you're trying to solve and make it as minimal as possible because that's such a high bar that you really have to focus. It is, it is. Yeah, and just just to echo that, uh, a friend who's a startup advisor as well and a serial entrepreneur says that when you seek to, out to be the best in the class, it's not okay to just be 20% better. You have to be like 10x better. <laughs> uh, like, like you need to have an idea that you think w- would be 10x better than the existing player in the field. I think there's a lot of truth to that, but I'll just add something to that, which is that you certainly don't have to be 10x better in every way. And in fact, you can often be worse in a number of ways, but you probably have to be something like 10x better in some particular way that users really care about. So, so an interesting example of this would be like going from regular photographic cameras to digital cameras. In many ways, digital cameras sucked, right? It, the early ones were way lower resolution, but they had some really great advantages over a photographic camera because it's totally unrealistic to start a startup and then just be 10x better at everything relative to your competitors, right? But you have to hone in on something that the user truly cares about. And that's the thing that you have to absolutely crush it at. And it, and it doesn't even have to be all types of users. Just you have to be 10x better at one thing that some types of user really care about. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for that clarifying <laughs> nuance. I, I like that a lot. Well, also add, like, why 10x better? Because I think, you know, that might seem mysterious. And obviously, this is just a rule of thumb, like maybe 5x or 3x is fine. But I think the the reason that rule of thumb exists is because there's a huge switching cost, right? It's like someone is probably already doing something, or they have to learn how to use your system, or they have to give you money or something like this. And so if you're only 20% better, it can be really hard to convince people to bear that, like, switching cost, especially if you're unproven and they've never heard of you. Whereas if you're 10x better, or let's say even 5x better, that's a pretty compelling reason to try your thing and invest that extra time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. With that, I want to I jump into your latest transition. So tell us, okay, you, you finished your shed, you shipped it. Then what happened? 
Yeah. Uh, so I, I shipped it and then I, I stuck around on this lovely prototyping team inside Google Research for about another year. And then the the climate bug bit me. Like I've, I've always been climate concerned and I've just funneled uh, money through donations to uh, the, the Rainforest Trust and environmental organizations on the side. But I wrote a blog post about how even Wall Street is pitching in for the climate crisis. And I re- reconnected with a friend who also turns out to be climate concerned. And uh, once the two of us got to talking, we, we decided to both quit Google and work on the climate crisis because basically we, we as a society only have 10, 20 years to reach net zero carbon emissions and stay there forever. So it's kind of all hands on deck. I, I, didn't, I honestly didn't realize the urgency of the problem until I did the back of the envelope calculations and read the IPCC reports. So just so the listener has an idea of what you're referring to, what do you believe is going to happen in 10 to 20 years? Let's say we continue polluting like we are now. Yeah. So if we don't reach net zero carbon emissions in 10, 20 years, then we're going to blow past the 1.5 degrees Celsius, 2 degrees Celsius thresholds that we've given ourselves. And the world is going to warm a lot more than that. And at that point, so basically if we do nothing, it's, it looks like it's going to be four or five, maybe seven, eight degrees Celsius warming. And at which point we start- Over what period? Over the, the next uh, 100 years. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty uncertain because once we reach these kind of like dangerous high levels, it kicks off positive feedback loops. So no, the scientists and like the models that we have don't really know how much it's going to warm because once we start warming the world to a certain extent, it kicks off these loops. For instance, like the, the ice melts, which uh, and the ice was because it's white was reflecting heat back into the atmosphere. So then if we just have more dark ocean that's melting into, that's going to heat the world. And we're going to have more natural disasters and fires, which also release more carbon to the air. Lots of positive feedback loops that are hard to model. So no one really knows, but uh, it's, it's dangerous and unknown and potentially catastrophic. Let's talk about applying probabilistic thinking to this topic, because yeah. I, you know I think the, some of the ideas we were talking about earlier yeah. are actually really relevant. Yeah. Uh-huh. When I think about climate change, I, I sort of see two things happening simultaneously. I'm curious to see if you agree with me. One is it seems like people are very focused on the mean prediction, but actually the really scary thing is if it, if it turns out it's like in the 80th, 90th, even 95th percentile of our estimates. In other words, we expect there to be very bad nonlinear effects where, you know, going up one degree, okay, that causes problems. Going up five degrees, that might be like totally catastrophic. And so if you think about our models and like our mean estimates, if it's right in the mean, that's not nearly as scary as if it's like, oh, actually we underestimated and it's actually twice as bad. And maybe that's not that likely, but it's so much worse that to me, a lot of my fear around the topic resides in those like upper end estimates. What do you think about that? I, I think that's very uh, statistically literate of you. <laughs> yeah, so the, yeah, because I think we, we toss around the mean because it's easy to convey a mean as a single number, but really, yeah, it's a distribution and uh, the, the higher tail end of the distribution is, is really scary. And I think we actually are, unfortunately, like we've been exceeding the warming estimate. Yeah, so second point I want to make about this is that I think with many things in life, we have the intuition that the more uncertainty there is, the less we should worry about it. Mm. And I think that's often right. But I think that things like this that are, could be really, truly catastrophic, actually greater uncertainty can actually be a reason for greater concern. And you know, imagine the variability of outcomes increasing, like we're less and less certain about how bad climate change will be. 
That because of this nonlinear effect, that actually puts more risk in the tails, which is where the really, really bad stuff happens. Right. So if we we knew it was going to be one degree, that's actually less dangerous than if like we're unsure whether it's going to be it could be anywhere from zero to two degrees, which is less dangerous than like negative one to three degrees, because you're pushing more and more risk into the tail. So I think that people's intuition that like, oh yeah, the, the more uncertain we are, that means we should ignore it. It's actually sort of the reverse. What do you think about that? Yes, totally. And it's a cognitive bias, actually, that when things are uncertain, that people are less likely to act. So that makes me want, like, as someone who does know things about cognitive biases, like, that makes me want to act more because I'm like, oh, gosh, like, because it's uncertain, people are unlikely to act. Because it's a collective action problem, people are unlikely to act. So, gosh, we really need to act. And also, historically, people have not been acting. Yes, let's, like, all signs point to, hey, everyone, act. Yeah, no, another point that I'm curious to get your feedback on is, for me, if you're thinking about something that's truly catastrophic, it flips the role of evidence. Because normally, if something's really extreme, we say, well, you know, in order to prove something really extreme, you need really extreme evidence, right? But I think when we're talking about something that could be absolutely catastrophic for society or the whole world, even a little bit of evidence that the thing might happen seems like it's a, enough reason to take it very seriously. Like, my feeling is even if I only thought there was a 20% chance that the whole climate change thing was was really a big deal, like most scientists claim, that would actually be enough to still allocate lots of resources to the problem. Yeah, because you're you're taking the kind of expected value of, uh, alongside your utility function. Like if there's a small prob- probability that this is going to happen, which it's not small, honestly, <laughs> it's, it's very, very likely, but then that we're going to get a very bad result of then we need to multiply those in order to get an indicator for how much we care. I think with climate change and other issues that we're really talking about something potentially catastrophic, like you know, bioengineered terrorism, where maybe someone will try to make a super virus, or the future of advanced artificial intelligence, where maybe someone will make an AI that actually has a bunch of dangerous society. These things, like because they could be potentially so negatively transformative, like the burden of evidence to me is a lot lower because it, like in order to take it seriously, because you're like, well, even if these things had a 20% chance, like we should take them dead seriously and we should allocate really significant resources to try and understand them better. Yes. So do you have an idea on how we might be able to deploy the, these, these resources, given that this is kind of a, like it requires some like both psychological and statistical literacy to get people to appreciate the problem? Well, when it comes to climate change, the thing that I often come back to is that it seems like getting individuals to change their personal behavior when it's against their self-interest has been tried just hundreds of times and just not been that successful. For example, getting people to personally make decisions where they pollute less. And often it also seems like these decisions get sort of corrupted. Like people tend to focus on things like using paper straws, which are very kind of visible ways of signaling that you care about the environment, but that in the grand scheme of things are really not the core issue at all. And so I I think I'm somewhat skeptical of these like individual behavior change based strategies. Not that people shouldn't make that choice for themselves. And, and do what they can. I think they should, but I just don't see that as the long-term strategy that's going to actually work. Right. I totally agree. And I, I don't think it's fair to ask people who have like real problems in their life to constantly be making these trade-offs between what's convenient and what's good for the environment. Like I do feel like the change needs to be sort of like at the governmental regulation, corporate, more scalable level. Because like, as, as we've seen, even with the coronavirus lockdowns, the, our, our emissions have not dropped that much, even though we as a society are consuming uh, much less than, than before. One other thing I noticed about the way that climate change is often presented is it feels to me like scientists and journalists and so on 
who think climate change is a big deal are a little bit nervous about presenting the true amount of uncertainty. In other words, I sometimes feel like they overstate the level of certainty. And I totally get why they do this because they're like, well, this is really big, important thing that could actually cause hugely catastrophic consequences. And there's so many people that are science deniers or they don't want to take it seriously. If we present it as uncertain, that gives more ammunition to the other side. But to me, this is a pet peeve because I guess my general attitude is it's actually a better idea to present it with the uncertainty we have around it, but point out how, in fact, that uncertainty shouldn't make you feel any better. So my general sense is that there's a lot of evidence that the planet is warming due to human behavior, but that the actual models have more uncertainty than is generally acknowledged in the press. Do you think that that's true or do you think I'm wrong about that? I mean, historically, I would say that is incorrect. I think like historically, um, like I read this, like anyone who's curious about this, there's a piece, a great piece from the New York Times magazine called Losing Earth. And historically, back in the 80s, when there was actually a lot of political consensus about climate change, like both like bipartisan support, <laughs> we should we should do something about this problem. Uh, like I was, I was surprised to learn that um, the older George Bush got into the White House with the campaign, we will combat the greenhouse effect with the White House effect. So really? A, yes, yes. There is enormous bipartisan support for doing something about climate in the 80s. And it was actually kind of the scientists who let us down because they were not willing to take a more declarative stance because like, you know, like both of us have like scientific training and we are so used to like nothing's like certain for sure i mean that's true nothing's certain for sure but scientists cannot agree on the wording to be used for how to frame how likely this is to be a problem and because of that like the the movement kind of was able to get kind of sideswiped uh, politically but do you disagree with what i'm saying about today because my feeling is that actually very often when you read about climate change, it's viewed as though, oh, these models are super accurate and we know exactly what's going to happen in the next 20 years. Whereas my sense is there's actually a lot of uncertainty. That, that uncertainty makes me feel no better about it. Like I said before, it actually makes me feel worse about it. It makes me think it's riskier. But I'm curious to hear whether I'm off base. I mean, maybe, maybe they're not overstating the knowledge we have. They're models. <laughs> they're, they're models. And I think a lot of them are written like in, in Fortran. They're kind of Kind of sketchy. There's a, a lot of the models are also based off of other models in the same portfolio. So there's not a single model. There's like a portfolio of models. Different labs have right, right. different models, and the models have their own different predictions. And so the uh, IPCC looks together at like the portfolio of models to make the decision and kind of estimate the the lower and upper bounds. Right. Well, my under, my understanding is that there's a, a few different sources of uncertainty that you could combine. One type of uncertainty is that we know that there are some things that are not in the models. Like, for example, my understanding is that cloud cover is very hard to model and has some effects. And I think they've made some progress on it more recently in the last few years. But that's an example of something that like previously was not in the models or not in it very accurately. We knew that, right? So that's kind of a known problem and, and that's going to be getting better. And of course, we're trying to add more and more factors into these essentially physics simulations, right? So that's one type of uncertainty. A second type of uncertainty is that the models disagree with each other to some degree, right? They don't all exactly agree. And so then there's this uncertainty around, okay, which model to trust? And that actually creates another layer of uncertainty. A third type of uncertainty comes in because we can't predict the future. And so if we think about what's going to happen in 20 years, it actually depends on economic output. It depends on behavior change. It also depends on technology progress, right? It depends on regulation. So, so there's all these exogenous factors that have nothing to do with climate per se, 
but they actually do influence the outcome of the model. And then finally, fourth, I point to unknown unknowns, right? It could turn out our models have problems that we don't even know that they have. For example, as you mentioned, many of them are based on like really old Fortran code that's running some kind of physics simulation. And who knows, there could be just assumptions baked into that that we don't realize are, are faulty assumptions or missing important dynamics. So when my suspicion is that when you add up all those factors, there is more uncertainty than is generally stated about the models. That being said, I still think it's something we should take very seriously as a problem. To your second point, there is an uncertainty interval provided with these models because there are many models. So the, like you said, the models are outputting different predictions. So we kind of have a, a range over predictive values generated by this portfolio of models. And I guess something else that may help is that these models have been predicting for decades. So we have been reconciling the current atmospheric CO2 predictions with the model predictions and seeing where our actual path relative to the predicted band. So we know that these models are behaving optimistically. But you know, that's another interesting point that's like the fact that they're underestimating suggests that there is something missing. It, we shouldn't make us feel better, it should make us feel worse, but it, uh, it does suggest that there's, there's some kind of problem. I mean, the thing about modeling like this, though, is it's so hard to account for all these forms of uncertainty and add them up properly. Like, you can say, well, we have five models and they all disagree and we can use them as a kind of distribution. That's one type of, of uncertainty, right? And then you could say, well, each model, we know that it itself has an uncertainty band, right? Because it's doing some kind of physical simulation. And then we also know that there's some things that we know we're not modeling and we could try to add that. And finally, there's the unknown unknowns, which are the hardest to add. Like we don't know how to add that. So yeah, I, I mean, obviously it's, it's a subjective question of like, what does it mean to be really accurate? How accurate does it have to be before we can say it's really accurate? But yeah, maybe, maybe I don't know if you and I actually disagree or if we're just kind of, uh, just have different subjective senses, yeah. Right, I, I totally agree with you that the models aren't perfect, the models are inaccurate. But my main point is that it doesn't feel as though we can wait, we have the time to wait for a super accurate model uh, and before acting. And I feel confident acting because we have gotten a number of data points because these models have been in production for decades. And we can see that what actually happens in the world, if you plot that, it makes the model seem over-optimistic. So. What's actually going to happen if this trend continues is probably worse than what the models are predicting. So uh, we need to get on it. Yeah. And, and like I said, even if I only thought there was a 20% chance of this being a real issue, I think we should do, do I think we should take it much more seriously than we do right now in the US. And I think it's significantly more than 20%. So I'm 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 totally sold that this is this is something we should be taking really seriously. So tell me about your journey and your approach to working on this. Like maybe I can just share a quick story uh, before that uh, on, on this yeah. uncertainty. So, okay, I, I went to a science and tech high school in the U.S., and it, it used to be ranked as like the number one high school in the United States. And our summer assigned reading was uh, a science fiction novel called State of Fear. It was by Michael Crichton, and it was about global warming. And it's science fiction, <laughs> but it's written very realistically. And he makes the argument that we don't need to worry about climate because all these measurements have uncertainty and error to them. So like, why are we getting all like worked up out of nothing? And that's basically the whole book. It's like, it's a science fiction novel to create climate deniers. And being an uh, easily uh, impressionable, um, like rising high school senior at the time, like I was reading this book and I was like kind of like nodding all along. Like it was, it was pretty persuasive. It was just like, yes, of course, there's like uncertainty in all, all the measurements. Like, yes, of course, like who knows what, what's happening? Like, is this actually caused by humans or not? And I just find that, like, obviously, like, I've since educated myself since then, but I guess I'm very upset about this 
book because it taps into lots of human cognitive biases towards inaction. Like this uncertainty makes us feel like we're not responsible for acting. It makes us question our scientists in a way that just leads to inaction and total destruction, I guess. Like if, if we don't even, it's kind of like what Trump does. Like, like yeah, help me formulate this. because <laughs> Like they, they both kind of question, uh, like, like Trump caused people to distrust the media. So then if you don't trust the media, then you're kind of screwed because <laughs> you're, you're kind of screwed at that point. The same, like, same on this climate front, like if you don't trust the scientists, if you start questioning the process, I don't know. I think what you're getting at is that if we distrust scientists, then how do we make progress on topics like this, right? Because besides scientists, who else is actually studying climate change deeply and trying to figure out what the danger is and so on? So once we've thrown scientists out, it's like we have no way to to make progress on this question. Right. And I guess like the model uncertainty is a true thing that exists, but the scientists know that. Like like anyone who is scientifically trained knows that there's always going to be model uncertainty. So uncertainty is kind of like a technical term. It's not like a reason for distrust. I guess it feels kind of like that word out in the public, uncertainty, means something different. Right. Because uncertainty in the world means, oh, maybe we should wait, maybe we shouldn't act. But uncertainty to a scientist is is a good thing. It means you have a model of the likelihood of something and like the range of possible outcomes. So uncertainty is not inherently bad and it's sort of fundamental to doing science, yet it can be used to discredit something. I think to me, a good metaphor would be like, imagine you thought there was like a 50% chance that you might have some horrible, deadly cancer. You're not going to be like, well, it's uncertain. I'm not going to do anything about it. It's like, no, you're going to seriously take it, take it really seriously. The fact that it's only quote unquote 50%, that shouldn't make you not deal with it. Right. And similarly, uncertainty in climate change shouldn't make us not deal with it. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, if it, if it's going to happen, it could be like, a cancer, but for the whole world, right? So uncertainty itself is not a reason for lack of action, especially when it comes to things so serious. Now, if it was something really minor, like, oh, you have a 50% chance of this really mild condition, okay, well, maybe maybe the fact that it's 50% uncertain makes you even slightly less likely to deal with it than you would otherwise, which is probably not very likely because it doesn't really matter either way. Right. And then I guess what I'm kind of getting at is that it seems like there's some sort of like unfortunate like technical punning that's ha- happening in, in this space. Like like uncertainty is the technical term, but then it, common English, it means something else. Like expected value is a technical term, but I think it, uh, it also means something different out in the world. Right. This, this is similar to like the usage of the word theory. Like a scientist might say like the theory of evolution, but to a lay person, the word theory can mean something that's uncertain. And so there can be a confusion like, oh, if it, they call it a theory, that means that they're uncertain about it. Whereas the evolutionary biologists be like, well, no, I'm really not that uncertain about evolution. It's like, I'm almost certain that it happened. Uh, but, you know, the word theory can have different meanings simultaneously. Yeah. If you'd like to reflect on your values and identify what sorts of things you value intrinsically, there's a useful and completely free tool for that at clearerthinking.org. There are lots of things that people value, career success, friendship, family, having fun, But intrinsic values are special because they are our most fundamental values. We value them for their own sake, and we would continue to value them even if they caused no other effects. 
Now, like most people, you're probably not aware of all of your different intrinsic values, even though they may be influencing your behavior and goals in numerous ways. So at Clearer Thinking, they've made a test to help you identify your intrinsic values. Taking the test will help you to figure out your most important intrinsic values, discover what your unique intrinsic values say about you, and understand why intrinsic values are so important. You can find the Intrinsic Values Test as well as many other tools and mini-courses on clearerthinking.org. Let's wrap up by talking about uh, your new project and the direction you're heading with it. Yeah, so the uh, the new project, so my, my buddy uh, Eugene and I both left Google to work on climate, and we're also applying all the design principles that we we talked about in the first part of the podcast to our, our new venture. So when uh, Eugene and I sent off our goodbye emails, like goodbye, we're, we're, we're leaving Google to work on climate. It was super well received. Like, like Eugene's post even went viral on LinkedIn and got half a million views and hundreds of people reached out to us saying, hey, we're thinking about making a similar transition, but we don't know where to start. Why do you think it resonated so much with people? Oh gosh, I think this is on a lot of people's minds, but I think different people are stopped from doing something for, for different reasons. Like, like maybe some people don't think that there's hope or they're not sure like what one person can actually do in the space, or perhaps they're not sure how their skills like fit into the space. And um, yeah, so I guess there's like a lot of uh, amb- ambiguity. And like EG and I have worked through the, these questions ourselves and we're trying to, yeah, create like a, a community. It's called Work on Climate. We're on workonclimate.org to just pull everyone who's climate concerned up into a meaningful job or long-term project in climate. Or if you, if you want to start a climate startup, we'd love to help you meet your co-founder because scaling people is probably the most impactful thing that we can do in the short term. We just need way more people working on this problem. That's really cool. So I guess before talking to you about this, my view on strategies to try to make a massive difference in climate change was that there's only two really viable strategies that can have a massive difference. Like there's many, many things that could have a small difference, but in terms of like having a massive difference where it really solves the problem, the only two strategies that I could see were one, political change. Like if the US had a president that really cared about climate change, and then that president worked with the Chinese government and the Indian government, and they all collaborated, that can make a massive difference. And the reason I mentioned those three countries is because my understanding is that a very substantial proportion of the greenhouse gases are, are coming from those three countries. And so you really have to get them on board. And then the second seemingly viable strategy for making a huge difference would be a technological one. If people could develop better technologies that actually flip the equation, so it's actually in people's self-interest to not pollute or to pollute dramatically less, that that also would leverage self-interest to solve the problem. And my understanding is that Germany, for example, funded a lot of green technology, which has helped to some degree. But you could imagine, for example, prizes that the government puts massive amounts of money up if someone can invent a technology that has certain specifications that helps with climate change and things like that. And that kind of prize, because it's only paid out if someone actually achieves the goal, could actually be a relatively cost-effective way to try to incentivize that. So that, that was the only two strategies that really seemed viable to me as like huge changes. But then talking to you, you actually made me realize that there might be a third strategy involving corporations. So can you tell me about that? I thought that was fascinating. So first of all, I want you to tell me about this third strategy that you taught me about involving corporations, which I think is super interesting. But also, I want you to critique what I just said. Do you agree? Do you disagree? What do you, what do you think about uh, what I said about these two large strategies? 
I think the the two large strategies, the political and the techno- technological strategies are correct. But I think if you just leave it at that, and if you don't unpack it further, then it feels like a very hopeless problem. But there might be a lot of like actual sub-steps that different groups can work on. They don't have to solve the whole problem unilaterally, independently, right? Exactly, exactly. So I would love to like um, unpack it a little bit. So for instance, like the first like political umbrella of like political strategies. And I think you said like, oh, if we only we had a president who, <laughs> who was mission aligned. But I guess there are some really promising things that are happening on, on the political front, which, uh, which give me hope. For instance, uh, like I learned about this great organization, Run for Something, which gets people to young uh, progressives to, to run for office. And the, the interesting lever here is that apparently 40% of state legislature seats go uncontested. So there's one person from one party running for the seat that they don't have. Really? Any I didn't know yes. that. Yeah. So that's a very interesting lever because if we pull in this lever, we can feed the, the state legislatures with more young progressives than from state legislature, they go on to, to Congress and that's where we need them. So run for something super efficient organization. Uh, they, like so, so Some of the statistics I found impressive were that I think on average, $10,000 like to run for something gets a new person elected. What? That little? Oh my gosh, that's just shocking. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very efficient compared to uh, the get out to vote campaigns, which um, the, the numbers I've, I've heard on that side are, it takes about $300 to flip a vote. Are there other political strategies that that seem really interesting to you? Yeah. So I guess on the the non-elected front, um, there there's a public utilities commissioners. So these are like there are a few hundred across the the country, and they are responsible for allocating trillions of dollars <laughs> um, into like new new power plants. And uh, so one one activist I found super inspiring, um, Hal Harvey. I think he's a mechanical engineer by by training or engineer by training, and uh, now is a climate lobbyist. And so he goes to these public utility commission hearings when they're deciding like what type of power plant to build. And he'll go and recruit a hundred mothers of asthmatic children to show up to these hearings with him and uh, <laughs> kind of uh, pressure them into building new green power plants. So I guess reading about Hal Harvey's strategies, like not just this one, he, had, he has many more, gave me hope that one person can really make a difference in the climate space if they're very strategic. So tell me now about some strategies in the technological space. Yeah, so you mentioned uh, you mentioned Germany. So Germany was able to uh, drive down the the cost of solar panels for everyone across the world by putting uh, like massive amounts of, of funding into uh, mass producing these. So just the act of mass production, there was no new R and D breakthrough or anything, but just mass production of solar panels with the existing technology drove down the the cost of solar panels by like a, a few orders of magnitude. So that is this actually the same strategy that's used by the, the French nuclear program. So it's not as though the French have, uh, like they, they have much lower nuclear costs than, than we do here in, in the United States. And it's not because they have like any fancy new R&D, it's because they picked a uh, reactor design and mass produced it. Whereas here in the United States, we try one reactor design and then we try another reactor design and we never reach those economies of scale. That's interesting because people might think, oh, to make progress in tech, you have to really innovate and, and develop something new, but maybe you can just do what the classic thing of just building more of them and then the costs tend to go down automatically. Yeah, actually, the, the people in the climate space, like the researchers that we've been talking to say like, hey, we already have 
a lot of climate tech. Like, yes, we will need more climate tech, but we haven't even deployed the existing climate tech that we have on the scales that we, we, we can deploy it. So why don't you tell us a little bit about why there was such a problem with getting investments to work in climate change and just generally in the clean energy space? Right. So uh, most investors in, in the climate space are um, trying to maximize the, their return on investment. And I feel like we can apply these same principles, but also through a philanthropic lens. So for instance, effective altruists try to maximize their, their impact per dollar donated. And I feel like in the climate space, we do need a hybrid approach because a lot of these startups or like climate R&D research are not necessarily traditionally profitable, especially in, in the early stage. So climate investors don't want to donate, but climate investors uh, don't want to invest, but they're also too foreign for the philanthropic space to fund. So we need some sort of hybrid approach. I've been pretty surprised by uh, my encounters with investors in the space. Not, not all investors are like this, but like the vast majority of climate investors are in it just for the money. They treat it just as any other uh, investment. So I guess I've been I feel like there's a great opportunity for some sort of hybrid investing philanthropy approach. And I think that's a really interesting area to poke because currently in the climate space, if, if you're a founder, investors will only be interested in working with you when you look profitable, which I mean, I guess that makes sense as <laughs> that, that, that makes sense for, from the investing domain, but we kind of only have one planet. Like, is, are there ways that we can fuse investment and philanthropy in order to make still efficient, effective decisions, but aren't purely on a single axis. What do you think of the kind of prize model that I mentioned previously, where prizes could be offered for really significant breakthroughs? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, yeah, I definitely feel like prizing and um, there are other levers we can pull, like some sort of you know, other intrinsic motivators for people like prestige or things like I, I, I feel like as long whatever gets the job done. And I actually would love to like you've told me about this um, in, in another context, but I, I found that your your prizing and your exponential uh, grant idea very compelling if we could share that with the audience. Yeah. So, so basically the idea is for clearthing.org, we wanted to see if we could help other people build programs like we do. So in other words, we build lots of programs for decision-making, habit formation, cognitive biases, all kinds of things like that, that we launch online. But we wanted to say, well, can we leverage other people to build these kinds of programs that then can be released public and hopefully benefit, benefit people's lives? And so we created a particular system we call our microgrants program, where there were three stages. The first stage is you come up with an idea for a program you want to build and you submit it. And it's kind of a competition and you win a little tiny bit of money. And then we invite you to stage two, if you're one of the winners in stage two, you have to write an outline for a detailed outline of what program you might want to create and why you think it's worth creating. And if that's approved, then you win a bit more money. And finally, that takes you to stage three, where you're invited to stage three, where you actually have to go try to build that program using, we actually create technology called guided track that helps people make interactive learning experiences. All of the programs on clearthing.org, our website, are made using our software, Guided Track. The applicants have to go learn Guided Track and try to build their own program. And then we would give you feedback from two of our team members on your program to try to help you make it better. And additionally, we would use another system we made called Positly, 
which recruits people for studies to actually recruit at least 25 people to actually go through your whole program, just regular people, and give you feedback and critique it and tell you what they liked and didn't like. And so we put them through this honing process. And then at the end, they would have all this information about how to make it better. They'd incorporate that information and that would lead to a final program. And what was so exciting to, to us about this whole system was that it just, it just seemed to work just phenomenally well to help people succeed at making the thing they wanted to make. Um, so we ended up accepting, I think it was 16 submissions as winners at phase one. And then we ended up with 14 of them going through all three of these phases and actually producing a program that implemented on their idea. And they were really high quality. A lot of them were really excellent. And so that was just really exciting that we figured out this, this sort of more scalable way to leverage people's desire to make something and put it in the world. And, um, and they were able to win these prizes along the way. They weren't large sums of money, but it was a sort of carrot that, that helps motivate them. And also we provided deadlines by saying, okay, your stage one submission has to be at this time, your stage two at this time and so on. And we provide this feedback loop. So they couldn't just build a thing in the abstract they were getting feedback the whole time to help them hone their idea. So it's, it's like trying to turn it from a shed into a cake, but like through a systemized, systematized process. I find that so compelling. Like it's, it's ho- so hard to make things and you've come up with a kind of a secret framework or like, like secret recipe for getting people to produce things on, on, on deadlines so that they're high quality and that they're yeah, motivated to do. There's some really cool ones. Like one of them was on active listening. So helping you be a better listener, basically. Another one was on suicide risk, where they actually ended up consulting with three different experts on suicide risk, which I thought was was really cool. One of my favorites was on memory biases, where you actually go through this program and it tries to insert fake memories. And and at the end, it it, it sees if it fooled you and it teaches you about how our our memories can be biased. Whoa. Yeah. So that that was really fun. Wow. So what are the ideas that you think we can take away to get people like working on climate or working on their passion projects or whatever they want to do? Yeah, I think a few things. One, social accountability is incredibly powerful, right? Knowing that there's a human that's expecting you to do a thing by a certain time. Second, deadlines are, are, you know, are being part of that are just so useful. And the way that we did deadlines in that program is we said, okay, you need to submit by this day, but if you can't make it, let us know and we will work with you. And so then if someone said, oh, I can't make it by that date, we would say, okay, what date can you commit to? So they, we, they could move the date, but then they had to commit to another date. Another, so it wasn't just, oh, now just submit it whenever. So they always had a deadline. And I think that's a really powerful and flexible model where the deadline can be moved, but you must always have a deadline. A third thing, I think small financial rewards can be very satisfying, even if they're not enough money to like move the needle it feels like a prize and it feels like something you can be proud of to try to achieve. And so I think that's also really powerful. And finally, creating a systematic feedback loop. Like we were talking about the, the beginning of this conversation with cognitive walkthroughs and prototyping and all these different ideas, trying to make that systematic so that anyone can apply it. And you can't just develop something in a vacuum. You're going to have multiple rounds of feedback built into the system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess another idea is that I noticed in, in your design is that when the creator does one thing, then you scale it up for them. Like you run the user study and you, like they do one thing and then something else kind of happens in like a very scaled and kind of empowering way. So to wrap up, let's just talk quickly about the kind of corporate-based strategies to try to improve global warming. Can you tell us about that? 
Yeah. So I, I wrote a, a piece on, on my blog called Wall Street is Pitching In for, for the Climate Crisis and it talks about two separate ideas. So the first idea is divestment, which is when activist uh, investors like sell off their shares in polluting companies to in attempts to kind of publicly distance themselves from, from these companies and drive the stock price down and make these look like less attractive investments. But it also makes sense from a purely kind of selfish perspective, because like if we truly believe that oil is going to be phased out or uh, greatly reduced by 2050 by the, uh, the Paris Agreement, then these are bad investments that you should not be uh, holding anyways if you're a rational player in the market. But the, the criticism for divestment some people have is that divestment doesn't actually produce the, back to the theory of change, like doesn't actually produce the intended effect in the market. Uh, because if you sell off these shares, then a less scrupulous investor may just come around and, and, and buy at a discount. So I'm not totally sure how I feel about this because, because um, on the one hand, like that, that's, that's true, like someone else will, or is buying the shares that you're selling off. But at the same time, like if you are a large pension fund and you are holding shares in fossil fuel companies, then it's kind of impossible for, for regulators to go take action against fossil fuel companies because you're, now you're hurting so many different people's like pension investments. So I do feel like the ethically responsible thing is to divest and not be taken as a hostage uh, or financial hostage there. But the other idea that uh, really complements divestment well is the idea of engagement. So uh, activist investors uh, go in and buy shares of polluting companies, but then influence them from the inside through shareholder resolutions. Like there is a coalition of, of investors called the Climate Action 100 Plus they have $40 trillion um, under, under management, which, which is huge. And they've been able to get some pretty interesting concessions through this type of uh, shareholder activism. Uh, for instance, they've gotten BP to agree not to invest any new capital expenditures, like any new, like not open up any new oil wells that would not be profitable under the Paris Agreement which is kind of huge. Like they're reining them in from, from the inside. And some of the other steps that they're taking are applying pressure to appoint people to the boards of these companies and align board member incentives to sustainability measures. One thing that you mentioned to me that, that made me think that this kind of approach might have a lot of promise is that there's a huge concentration of which companies actually pollute. Do you want to just mention that? Yeah. So the statistic is that a hundred companies throughout the world are responsible for 66% of world emissions. And this is coming across the sectors of mining, oil, gas, transportation, utilities, industrials, and consumer products. Yeah, I find that really fascinating because if you think about the two big strategies we mentioned before, one of them being political change and another being technological change, this provides a third lever, which is that if you could influence these hundred companies, then maybe that could have a huge impact as well. Yes, yes, totally. Especially if the, the structures in place at these companies are similar, then the, the changes that you enact with one can easily be scaled to the others. Wonderful. Cassandra, this was so great. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me, Spencer. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at clearerthinkingpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 321-341-4669. To find out more about Spencer, visit spencergreenberg.com. To find out more about Cassandra, take a look at her bio in the show notes. And to find out more about our show, visit clearerthinkingpodcast.com. 
If you like the show, we hope you'll rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And by the way, I just want to say a big thank you to those of you who have been leaving reviews for our show. It really helps, both in terms of our morale and in terms of spreading the show's ideas and booking amazing guests. So thank you for doing that. And if you haven't left a review yet, now's a great time to do it. We also hope you'll subscribe to our email newsletter called One Helpful Idea. Each week, we'll send you one idea that we think is really valuable that you can read about in just 30 seconds. Along with that week's new podcast episode, you can sign up for the newsletter on our website, clearerthinkingpodcast.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.